here, here would be a scenario that, that I see not uncommonly. Again, a woman presents with what she believes is a lump or a thickening in the breast. A mammogram and an ultrasound is ordered. It's properly reported, but for various reasons, that report is not properly communicated to the patient herself. And that's more of a paperwork thing than anything else. It's just sloppy record keeping and sloppy communication, the results of which can be absolutely devastating. I mean, you know, we're talking about a delay of up to a year or 18 months or 24 months in the diagnosis of a, a high-grade cancer like that. That makes all the difference in the world. That is the difference between life and death. Hey, everybody. This is Jeremy Lynch and Landon Harlan from Obu Interactive. Today on the podcast, we'll be speaking with Dan Hodes. He is a founding and managing partner of Hodes Millman LLP. His expertise in the area of complex medical malpractice actions and his extensive successful plaintiff's personal injury trial experience may make him one of the most sought after lawyers in California amongst victims and families seeking justice. Hodes Millman recently secured a $17.25 million Kaiser Arbitration Award on behalf of a 39-year-old male client due to a misdiagnosis prior to surgery. Along with over $175 million in recoveries between Dan and his longtime legal partner, Jeff Millman, they were both inducted into the Orange County Trial Lawyers Hall of Fame in 2022. Dan, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So Dan, the delay or misdiagnosis of cancer seems to be a very surprising subject matter on this podcast. Cancer seems to be one of those things that has advanced testing. It has sonograms, and even it just has the pure awareness factor. Can you share with us what the common reasons would be why a medical professional could misdiagnose or delay in diagnosis of a deadly disease such as cancer? Yes, and thank you for that. I'm going to talk about four types of cancers. I'm going to talk about breast cancer, prostate cancer, lung cancer, and cancers of the urinary tract. So if we start with breast cancer, and I handle a lot of breast cancer cases. It's a really a specialty of mine going back to the early 90s. My first seven-figure verdict as a young lawyer was in a breast cancer case, and I, I took just a real keen interest in the subject matter, and I I handle a good number of breast cancer cases. The commonest scenarios that I see are several fold. First, a failure on the part of a radiologist to properly interpret a mammogram or an ultrasound, meaning that there is a suspicious finding, whether it's a cluster of calcifications or an, an asymmetry that should have been appreciated that was not. The study is read as what's called a BIRADS-1, in other words, a normal study, a year or sometimes two years will go by before that patient is re-imaged and that lesion that was apparent but not called at point A is now considerably larger and considerably more advanced in stage than it was at point A. So that's the commonest scenario that I see in breast cancer cases. What we also see not uncommonly is a failure on the part of a clinician to work up a, a mass or a density that a woman feels on breast self-examination. So for example, a woman will do her monthly breast self-examination, she'll find something that is concerning, she'll go to the physician, whether it's primary care or gynecology, and report that, 
the physician will uh, do an examination, him or herself, not appreciate what the woman appreciates and then fail to do the proper imaging, whether that be a mammogram and or an ultrasound to see what is going on. I also see uh, situations involving a failure to properly interpret a biopsy specimen, in other words, a pathologic misread. I also see, not uncommonly, and this is really, really concerning, situations where there is a suspicious finding on imaging, for example, that is just not reported to the patient. In other words, the ordering physician will will get a report saying we've got a a mammogram or an ultrasound here that's got a finding on it that needs to be you know further elucidated, but that information is not passed on to the the patient, thereby resulting in a delay. We handle a good volume of delay in diagnosis of prostate cancer cases as well. The commonest scenario there would be a situation involving a rising PSA level that is not appreciated and worked up. The upper end of normal for PSA reading is 4.0. Once you get uh, near there uh, and above that level, you need to be concerned and you need to be thinking about what the cause of this is. This could well be a prostate cancer, and at some point you need to do a biopsy to rule that out. Not uncommonly, that biopsy is not done and there is a resulting delay in making the diagnosis. I handle a fairly large number of delay in diagnosis of lung cancer cases as well. The common scenario there would be a a chest x-ray that was done, not necessarily to, to, to look for a cancer, but for example, to rule out a rib fracture. And there would be an incidental finding of a lesion, for example, in the, in the left lower lung that's not appreciated. A year or two or three then goes by, patient develops symptoms, another chest x-ray is done, that lesion that was apparent in that area two or three years earlier has now grown considerably. A CT scan is then done, a diagnosis is then made of what is at point B then an advanced stage lung cancer that should have been appreciated at point A uh, when it was likely a stage one and likely curable, but now two or three years later, it's not. We see a fairly large number of delay in diagnosis of cancers of the urinary tract as well. The commonest scenario there would be a patient that presents with a condition called hematuria, blood in the urine. Uh, When you get hematuria, the standard of care requires determining what the cause of that hematuria is. You, You need to do imaging studies in various scopes and so forth to rule out a cancer because a cancer certainly can cause bleeding and blood in the urine. Oftentimes that that workup is not complete and that will result in a delay of a year or two, sometimes longer, in the diagnosis of a urinary tract cancer. Those are the commonest cancer cases that we see and those are the commonest reasons that we see for these delays. Dan, that's very interesting. We were just talking about the different types of cancers that the firm has handled, and you mentioned breast cancer, and I wanted to ask you about this one as it relates to a story I once heard. It's my understanding that often there will be an ordering physician that will look for a mammogram or some kind of imaging or order it to be done. When they get it back, they may see something that is suspicious, but then not inform the patient And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that, and then we can get into the few of the other types of common breast cancers that your firm handles. Sure. 
here would be a scenario that, that I see not uncommonly. Again, a woman presents with what she believes is a, a lump or a thickening in the breast. A mammogram and an ultrasound is ordered. It's properly reported, but for various reasons, that report is not properly communicated to the patient herself. And that's more of a paperwork thing than anything else. It's just sloppy record keeping and sloppy communication, the results of which can be absolutely devastating. I mean, you know, we're talking about a delay of up to a year or 18 months or 24 months in the diagnosis of a, a high-grade cancer like that. That makes all the difference in the world. That is the difference between life and death. The proper reporting of a suspicious finding on imaging is monumentally important and regretfully, I see time and time again that that's just not done properly with often horrendous results to that. That's astonishing to me to find out that this happens and exists and you've seen this time and time again. I understand that the two breast cancers in particular, invasive ductal carcinomas and invasive lobular carcinomas can often be misdiagnosed or have a delay in diagnosis. Can you help tell us why that might be the case? Yes. So infiltrating ductal carcinoma arises in in the ducts of the breast, D-U-C-T-S. Infiltrating lobular carcinoma arises in the lobules of the breast, different areas of the breast. Infiltrating lobular carcinoma often is diagnosed late because it does not show up as well on standard imaging, particularly a mammogram, than does infiltrating ductal. It will show up better on an ultrasound, but typically if a woman undergoes a screening mammogram, and that is a negative study, the standard of care does not then require, unless there's a clinically palpable lump, the standard does not require then going on and doing the ultrasound. An invasive lobular carcinoma is just not well appreciated, not well seen on standard mammography versus an infiltrating ductal. And for that reason, infiltrating lobular carcinomas, which carry generally a worse prognosis than an infiltrating ductal, will see delays in diagnosis of the lobulars not uncommonly. And it's really unfortunate. Dan, that is a great point of what you said. And for anyone that's listening who is at the stage of considering hiring a medical malpractice lawyer that might be interviewing multiple lawyers, just to reiterate the point, what you're saying is be sure to speak with a lawyer about not just their trial experience, but the frequency of going to trial. And it seems like that is going to be one of the hallmark signs of who is going to help them secure the best result for them. Is that right? Yes. So question number one would be, does this lawyer truly specialize in medical malpractice? Does he or she devote 75% or more of their practice to medical malpractice? Have they been practicing for a considerable amount of time? And when I say a considerable amount of time, I'm talking about 15 or 20 years at least, because I think it is that period of time that is required to develop the skill set to very capably handle malpractice cases. I would ask, does that lawyer actually try medical malpractice cases and has he or she received favorable results? 
There's an organization called ABOTA, the American Board of Trial Advocates. To be an ABOTA member, one has to try 20 cases to verdict. So I think you would want to have a lawyer handling your malpractice case that's been an ABOTA member for a long time. I've been an ABOTA member for 27 years. You want to have a lawyer that not only tries cases, but has gotten favorable results at trial. Is that lawyer well-known to the defense bar? Is that lawyer feared by the defense insurance industry? Has that lawyer ever won trial lawyer of the year, for example? Is that lawyer considered to be a leader in the field? Those are the factors that I think are important in choosing a malpractice lawyer. Dan, that that is a great answer. Absolutely. It's important to know if the lawyer that you're interviewing, do they go to trial? When was the last time they went to trial? What were their trial results? You win some, you lose some, sure, but are they current, right? And then speaking with a member of the American Board of Trial Advocates is a great idea. And we'll make sure to include a link for anyone who might be out of state if they'd like to visit that site where they can learn more. I'd say lastly, as a follow-up, you know, lawyers in general are, are fairly good at, at representing themselves or representing the best. They'll point to a lot of badges and awards. And some of these things, the public doesn't know that a lot of those things can be purchased from $300 to $700 a year. You can literally purchase some of these badges that they'll point to suggesting their competency. But really, it's the questions that you suggested they ask that are very direct and look for a very confident answer. Yes, I was just in trial two months ago, three months ago, whatever that range might be, but fairly recent versus the, yes, I I was in trial a couple years ago, right? You're going to get the best result in your malpractice case if your lawyer is actually a trial lawyer. The defense lawyers fear plaintiff lawyers that try cases and that win cases. The defense insurance companies fear plaintiff lawyers that try cases and win cases. It's one thing to call yourself a trial lawyer. It's another thing to actually try cases to verdict and to win cases. And we don't win every case that we try. We don't. But you need a lawyer that's got the mocks in the appropriate case to take that case to trial without fear. That's really important. That brings us to an important point, transitioning from a trial in front of a judge and jury to what is known as arbitration. I understand you recently recovered over $17 million on behalf of a client in a Kaiser medical malpractice arbitration. Can you tell us a little bit more about arbitration and tell us a little bit about the case? Kaiser has got their own sort of private system of resolving their cases. Your case does not go in front of a a jury. Your case is heard by typically a single arbitrator, often a retired lawyer or a retired judge. Uh, My most recent Kaiser outing was a very sad case involving a 39-year-old gentleman who underwent surgery and suffered just a devastating stroke in the perioperative period. This is a, a gentleman that had a condition called neurofibromatosis, which is a genetic condition that caused him to develop these skin lesions called neurofibromas. He also had underlying chronic kidney disease and was suffering from an acute kidney injury kind of superimposed on this chronic kidney disease. He was to undergo elective surgery to excise this 
skin lesion. You don't put a patient through elective surgery if they've got an acute kidney injury superimposed on chronic kidney disease, but Kaiser did. And the results were devastating. I mean, this is a a 39-year-old who needs 24-7 care for the balance of his life expectancy. We worked the case up. I took 26 depositions. We went to mediation in the case. Kaiser offered $4 million to resolve the case. I did not feel that that was adequate. Thankfully, my client believed in me and in us and had the courage to take the case all the way through hearing, and we got a $17.25 million result, which I'm very proud of because that was, that was my work, along with Jacob Brender from my firm. And in the same vein of what are the most important factors when hiring a trial lawyer, can you tell us what you believe is the most important factor when it comes to someone who is hiring a lawyer because they found themselves in a situation of medical malpractice and it's likely to go into a Kaiser arbitration? Sure. So I think most importantly, you want to hire a lawyer that has got a lot of experience working within the Kaiser system because it is a system that is unique to itself. The selection of a neutral arbitrator is extremely important. Knowledge of the neutral arbitrators and what their propensities and proclivities are is very important. So above all, you, you want to work with a lawyer that has got considerable experience handling Kaiser cases. Myself, probably a third of my practice for the last 35 years has been representing victims of of negligence of Kaiser patients. I've handled hundreds of Kaiser cases and I've probably taken to arbitration, I'm going to give my best estimate of 40 to 50 actual Kaiser arbitrations. And I think that experience is, is very important. And I think that the more experienced your lawyer is within the Kaiser system, the better is the likelihood of optimizing your result. So it seems within the specialized world of being a medical malpractice lawyer and understanding medicine, there is even a greater specialty when it comes to handling a Kaiser medical malpractice case. Is that correct? I would say so, yes. You want to be sure you're hiring the right experts. You want to be sure that you are hiring the right arbitrator to hear the case. You want to be sure that you are obviously conversant with uh, all of the medical issues and sub-issues, not only on the question of liability, but on the questions of causation and damages. Again, most importantly, hiring a lawyer that's got a lot of experience handling Kaiser cases is very important. Kaiser itself internally keeps very careful records on who the lawyers are that are against them, what their track record is, and how many times they've banged them in the past. The greater the times that a lawyer has banged Kaiser at arbitration that has gotten a large arbitration award, I think the greater is the likelihood of getting a good result. Right. So clomber them, ring their bell, or as you say, bang them so that way there's a track record established and now you have their attention, which only allows you to resolve your client's case more swiftly and for a maximum result. That makes sense to me. There was a change in a law in California known as MICRA that is very important and has impacted the recovery limits of consumers for more than 40 years. 
Now that that's changed as of, I believe, January 1st, 2023, can you give us some background of that law and how it has changed for the better? Yeah. So in 1975, then Governor Brown, in his first term, while dating Linda Ronstadt, as it turned out, signed into law the what's called the Medical Injury Compensation Reform Act, otherwise known as MICRA. This really was a, a fiction that the insurance industry sold to him. The argument was that there were runaway jury verdicts that were causing the insurance companies to raise premiums, which in turn were causing doctors to flee the state, which in turn was jeopardizing California's access to health care. So please, Governor Brown, can you, can you help us out here and make some changes? And the changes that they made were radical changes. They placed a cap on the recovery of non-economic damages, that is damages for pain and suffering and inconvenience, loss of life, loss of limb, at $250,000. That's not $250,000 per negligent defendant, and it's not $250,000 per heir of a decedent that died as the result of medical negligence. It's $250,000, period. That was the law up until January 1st of 2023. Finally, we have some relief here. Assembly Bill 35 was signed by Governor Newsom in May of 2022, which took place, the, the change itself took place as of 1-1 of 23. The damages caps are now changed from, in an injury case, from $250,000 to $350,000. And in a death case, the cap is raised from $250,000 to $500,000. In addition to that, the caps will go up incrementally over the next 10 years to top out at $750,000 for a non-death injury and a million dollars for a death case. In addition to that, at the end of that 10-year period of incremental increases, the cap will go up 2% per year automatically to adjust for inflation. That's important. But perhaps more important than that is the fact that now, if there are multiple negligent defendants, up to three, you can stack these damages limits by three. So for example, in a death case as of 1-1 of 23, If that death was caused by the independent negligence of three physicians or three unrelated entities, the cap is a million five. In an injury case involving, for example, three negligent defendants, the cap is $1,050,000. So those are some very, very meaningful changes. Lawyers, before the cap was adjusted, were reluctant to take a a $250,000 maximum case because... We as lawyers not only invest our time into these cases, but we've got to fund the case itself. So if if you're going to take a case like this uh, all the way to trial, we're looking at investing fifty or seventy-five or a hundred thousand dollars of our money, putting that money at risk to get a result. But so if the most that we could get by way of a recovery for our clients is two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, it did not make economic sense to handle a case like that, given the expense that is involved. And given the limits on the recovery, that all changed as of 1-1 of 23. It's a new world now. And I think that the public is well served by that because finally we'll get a better sense of justice than we have for the past 47 years. So following up on that, Dan, for someone who is looking or researching how they would go through a process of hiring a lawyer for medical negligence. 
right? We're, we're talking a lot about imaging and how people are reading things and caps for arbitration. And what are the three or four steps that someone can go through when researching medical negligence? Step number one would be to get a hold of all of your medical records, all imaging studies, all pathology reports. The story is going to be told in the medical records. And I, as a a lawyer, need to study those medical records extremely carefully in order to determine whether I can represent you. I would say step number one is get all of your medical records and imaging. Step number two is please prepare a very detailed summary and overview of the relevant events. Prepare that in writing. Step number three is to call us and arrange to have that information forwarded to us. We have a staff of in-house people, nurses and lawyers that will review the matter with me personally. We will make the preliminary determination as to whether or not this is something that we think that we might be able to help you with. Most importantly, gather up all of your records and imaging studies and safeguard it and be prepared to forward that. Dan, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you so much for joining us on Cases for Causes. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Again, I want to thank Dan so much for joining us today. We truly appreciated him coming on and sharing his expertise. If you want to find out more about Dan or Hodes Millman and the work they do related to cancer misdiagnosis and medical malpractice, you can visit their website at www.verdictvictory.com. I also want to thank all of you out there for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of Cases for Causes and you'd like to help support the podcast, please smash that subscribe button, share it with others, post about it on social media, and always leave us a rating or review. To catch all the latest from Obu Interactive, you can follow us on Instagram at Obu Interactive or visit us at www.obuinteractive.com. Thanks again, and until next time, work passionately, live peacefully.